Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than deny myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here, so let's get excited to talk to today's guest. everybody and welcome to episode 34 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. Today I'm here with Cecily Ganhart and Cecily is from Kansas, right outside of Kansas City, where she works as an OBGYN. So I am very glad to have her with us today to hear her perspective both as an intermittent faster herself and as a woman physician who works with women who (laughs) use intermittent fasting. So welcome, Cecily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I always like to start by asking, what brought you to intermittent fasting? When was that? And just how did you hear about it? Yeah, so 
I probably heard about intermittent fasting in 2017, and I stumbled across Jason Fung's book, which I know you're a fan of as well, uh, The Obesity Code. Yeah, huge fan of his work, and he's helped to introduce intermittent fasting to so many people. So I read that book, and it made sense to me. I had tried before, kind of like calories in, calories out, you know, work out as much as possible, eat as little, you know, as you can. But that never really worked for me. And so in 2017, I was like, well, let me try something that I've never done before. It made kind of scientific sense and went from there. So I've done intermittent fasting since 2017. Total, I'm down 80 pounds. I was 264. Yeah, I was 264. at the. That was my highest weight when I had the birth of my second son. And so just through intermittent fasting, and then also, you know, I don't count calories specifically, but I did shift my dietary focus to incorporate more whole foods. So I tend to stay lower carb, though I'm not necessarily ketogenic. I still have carbs, but I try not to have too many processed foods. And for me, that has seemed to work very well. Yeah. I think that overall, the shift to more whole foods is not only very common, but I think it serves our bodies well with the intermittent fasting lifestyle. Yeah, I agree. I just think our bodies, well, you've mentioned this too before, like in your book, but our bodies knew what to do with food, you know, ages ago, right? I mean, there are certain foods that have kind of been commonplace throughout human history, and we really haven't had this shift or increase in chronic diseases. Really, it's a phenomenon of modern society, so many of the chronic diseases that we have today. And there's a lot of foods around today that weren't there previously. So I do like to try to keep it as whole food based as possible. And, you know, it's not 100% of the time, but I do feel like moderation, true moderation is the key there. And I actually enjoy eating real food. So it's not too much of a problem. Yeah, I think that's important because real food is delicious. (laughs) It It is. There's so many ways to prepare real food. So now when you read the obesity code as a physician, I know that you, of course, went to medical school and trained in, you know, medical knowledge of all sorts that the average layperson wouldn't know. But still, I bet a lot of the obesity code was a surprise. Am I right? Or or maybe different from what you'd been taught? Yeah, no, I would definitely say that uh, because, you know, intermittent fasting was certainly not something we went over in our physiology class. It just wasn't something that was talked about. And honestly, just nutrition-wise, we didn't spend a lot of time on that during medical school. So we kind of learned, at least what I learned, was kind of the more calories in, calories out approach. But even with that approach, we didn't necessarily spend too much time on the types of food someone should be eating. And I mean, honestly, so much has changed and from having different movements anyway to, you know, make sure you avoid all fat, low fat, low fat to, you know, okay, whole grains are good. Okay. Any grain is bad. I mean, I think 
the information society has put out has changed so much that I'm not even sure, depending on what air you would have trained in medical school, even if you spent a lot of time on nutrition counseling, would that have been the appropriate advice? Yeah, that's an excellent point because you're right. Dietary recommendations have changed dramatically over the decades. Right. And so I think it was very nice to kind of outside of the context of medical school and just kind of having an own personal interest, really start to research different things for myself. And I think the catalyst for all of that was intermittent fasting, but it's like, that's a portion of it. And so I was interested to see what other ways could you improve body function, bodily functions, maximize performance, et cetera. And that led me to kind of also look at food as medicine, you know, being one of the original medicines that we would have had um, back in the day combined with intermittent fasting. Exactly. And of course, the, the information he shares about insulin is so important. Would you talk about that a little bit? And uh, keeping our insulin low during the fast, that sort of thing, just to clarify. Exactly. So, well, just to talk about insulin, just in a broad sense to begin with, it's interesting. So we have, and I'm not going to get too techie, but, you know, we have various hormones in our body that are supposed to send signals to our brain to help regulate energy balance and energy expenditure and whether we store fat, burn fat, et cetera. And insulin, when everything is working properly, our endogenous insulin is supposed to serve as a signal for sufficiency and not to actually stimulate appetite, but to actually tell your body, okay, hey, you've had enough. Why don't you, you know, decrease what you're eating or you're full? The problem is, though, is when insulin becomes deregulated, you end up getting insulin resistance. And then that throws off so many other system processes in the body to where you start to store excess fat or develop diabetes or fatty liver, hypertension, and you know, you name it. So many things are tied to that. And so because so many of us live in a state of insulin resistance, we're not able to access our stored fat because we're constantly signaling the body to store, store, store. And so what the premise that Dr. Fung talks about is if you can lower your insulin levels naturally, through taking a period of gut rest, because every time you eat, especially some foods will stimulate insulin more than others, but when you eat, you're spiking insulin. So if we're spiking our insulin constantly around the clock several times a day, then that is going to lead to resistance, deregulation, and the storing of excess fat, which is what we don't want. You know, we don't want to store more fat than we need. So when you fast, you aren't spiking your insulin. And over time, your insulin levels naturally decrease, thus allowing you to access that stored fat for fuel or to burn it off or etc. You know, that's kind of a very just broad overview, but that's where we're coming into some of the mechanisms behind intermittent fasting and why uh, many people have found so much success with it. Yeah, I think that was a, a beautiful explanation of it. It wasn't too sciencey at all. It was it was just right. And I think that our, our audience will understand it because most people who listen do have an 
understanding of that. So you really took okay. it to a, to a good depth. So good one there. So anyway, yes, keeping the insulin low through the intermittent fasting. And also you mentioned the slightly lower carb approach. Do you want to talk about how that ties into? Yes. So in terms of, again, there are many different dietary approaches one can take. And I think what a lot of people, I know everyone can be in different camps, but I think the unifying theme is that one, eating whole foods is is always your your safe bet to go. But in terms of carbohydrates, specifically highly refined carbohydrates. So I'm not necessarily talking about your broccoli. You know, I don't think broccoli causes disease. So again, I want to clarify that. (laughs) Uh, You know, we're not going to have death by broccoli. Right. Um, So in terms of other things, though, that are going to spike your sugar, well, in order to process sugar, you need insulin, right? So when you naturally start to lower your carbohydrate intake, but doing that, especially by lowering your consumption of basically your snack foods, right? The things that are going to come in packages and, and things of that nature. When you start to decrease that, you aren't spiking your insulin as often, or to the same degree as when you were eating those foods, if you could substitute that out for something else. And so I tend to find at least what I found for myself was that when I shifted and really decreased the amount of processed packaged foods that we kept in our house, that also seemed to aid my weight loss because I felt really comfortable with my fasting schedule, but there's still always that question of, well, what should I eat when I'm not fasting? And so that's what I really wanted to also play around with because, yeah, I may have kept my insulin levels low during the fast, but I also didn't want to then just spike them, you know, shoot them back up because I had pop or something like that, you know? So I, I really had to start to analyze my diet and tweak things. And there's some things that I just don't eat anymore, or it's on a very rare occasion versus things that I used to eat all the time and really didn't think much about it. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because these highly processed foods, they're already processed, right, in the factory. So then our body also processes them very quickly and they just boom, go straight into our our blood sugar and that that's the whole yo-yo roller coaster blood glucose effect that then sends us to look for more food. That's the way it is for me. You know, like let's say I opened my window with a cookie or something really processed like that, I would feel a crash and then I need to eat more and then it's like a a cycle of eating versus right, you're right you eat that broccoli and <laughs> yeah, that just right. happened. It doesn't happen. And I mean, and some of that too, it's we, again, we have all sorts of different hormones. The body's extremely complex, but I think ghrelin is probably a hormone that a lot of people have heard kind of tossed around here or there. And the thing about ghrelin, that is a hormone that is a hunger signal hormone. It signals appetite, signals hunger. And so while all foods and food groups will suppress ghrelin, highly refined processed carbohydrates 
suppress ghrelin for the shortest amount of time. So it's not surprising that, like you said, if you open your window with a cookie versus if you opened it with something else, that you're going to feel more satiated longer and not have that urge again to look for something else to eat. So again, it's not saying that you can't ever have a cookie. There are definitely times for cookies and times for sweets and treats and things like that. But if you're eating those things frequently daily and you're wondering why are you always craving something else, you may want to look at some of those things that you're eating. Yeah, I think that's important. And I also find when over the duration of my window, I would include things like that tends to make a huge difference. You know, opening my window with the cookie is very different than, you know, having something like that at the very end of a, of a satisfying meal, you know, a little, a little few bites of dessert at the end of a meal, I'm going to be fine versus, you know, starting with dessert. (laughs) That doesn't work well for me at all. Right. Right. Yes, no. It's it's very difficult for me too to to open up with something sweet, especially if that's the only thing I'm eating because I know I'm it's going to trigger me probably to look for something else very shortly. Oh yeah, definitely. Cuz really that just as you mentioned with the ghrelin and and it doesn't keep our appetite suppressed very long because of the processed food. It just it makes me just have that crash and then I'm like, "All right, I got to keep keep my blood glucose up." And then you I'm also searching for all the wrong things. At that mm-hmm. moment. <laughs> it's like a vicious cycle. It's a cycle. It can easily become a cycle. Exactly. So you're an OBGYN and you, you work with women who are, are hoping to conceive. And I, of course, I, I know that you would like to mention, as, as I'll mention first here, you are not here giving medical advice. You're not serving as someone's doctor here on this podcast. Correct. This is just, we're just discussing for informational purposes. <laughs> Exactly. But where have you seen intermittent fasting to become very helpful for women in your practice? So on my day-to-day, I'm a high-risk obstetrician. And so that's what I do on my day in, day out. But then I also see women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who are hoping to obviously become pregnant, but they're also looking to lose weight prior to conception. Either they may have wanted to start ovulation induction medications, but the prescribing physician said, I'll do that. But prior to that, you need to lose X amount of pounds or you know, become healthier. And so people will see me for that. Um, Where I've seen intermittent fasting play a role is really helping to promote the restoring of the insulin sensitivity. Because for people who may not be familiar with PCOS, I'll just shorten it, that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. But for those unfamiliar with it, it at the core, insulin resistance plays a huge role in that condition in terms of eventually making ovulation either infrequent or people can go six months to years without ovulating spontaneously. And so with helping to restore the insulin sensitivity, then that also helps set off a chain of other events that then can help restore ovulation. I was really hoping you would get into into PCOS because this really is exciting for women who are suffering with this to know that fasting is such a great protocol to really lower the insulin. I've actually heard PCOS referred to as diabetes of the ovaries. Have you heard it? Uh-huh. 
Is that, is that yes. what they, yeah. I've heard people say that too. And I mean, that's, that's also a good description of it because again, you're getting at the fact that there's that insulin resistance. And when we think of diabetes, particularly type two diabetes, we're thinking of um, insulin resistance as some of the initial mechanisms in which then lead to elevated glucose. So in terms of polycystic ovarian syndrome, we often think about ovulation as the big kind of dysfunction with it, but really it's a lot beyond ovulation. So when you aren't ovulating regularly, right, then your menstrual cycles are going to be irregular. So that's probably your first clue or for some, most people who seek medical attention for it, that's probably their first clue that something is out of whack. But also having infrequent menstrual cycles, you know, we all focus on the pregnancy aspect and wanting to conceive with that, but not shedding your uterine lining in a regular, predictable fashion predisposes you to endometrial cancer. And so Ah. there's some other, yeah, there's some other like more far reaching, and I don't want to make it sound like the infertility aspect is not far reaching. That is definitely a huge um, component of it, but it's more than just let's get pregnant. Right. It's so after you are able to have a baby, if you go back to having these irregular menstrual cycles and going six to eight months to nine months without having a menstrual cycle on a regular basis, that lining and metrium that we would shed monthly just keeps growing and proliferating. And so when things grow and are stimulated with unopposed estrogen, you know, unchecked, that leads to malignancy over time. So that's a risk factor. This is also why obesity in general is a risk factor for endometrial cancer as well, because of that unopposed estrogen, that estrogen stimulation that is unchecked without the frequent shedding of the lining. So that's one aspect of it. You have the androgen excess. So in terms of having increased circulating testosterone um, or, you know, male type hormones. So this is why when uh, Some women with PCOS will have unwanted facial hair, will have really bad acne, other signs of um, androgen excess. So there's far-reaching metabolic consequences with this as well. And the insulin resistance goes into other things besides ovulation, irregularities, you know, that goes into tying into high blood pressure, risk of diabetes, all sorts of other things. So it's a condition where, and this is what I try to get my patients to focus on, while yes, I may be able to give you a medication to make you ovulate, you know, and, and then you'll have your child, which is kind of the immediate goal, we still have to think about what we can do with lifestyle changes, either before, preferably, or if it's after the baby, because this syndrome is putting you at risk for so many other things that could potentially impact the time you have with that baby you just conceived. Right. So it really is important to try to do a a lifestyle approach with uh, PCOS. What is, you know, really the the basis for the rise in in PCOS that that we're seeing? Is it just, you know, the increased insulin and the frequent eating and the foods that we're eating? Is that is that what's causing it? 
I'm not sure that we, and maybe I just haven't come across the study, so I shouldn't preface and say that we just don't know per se. I mean, I think there are a lot of theories out there in terms of just our lifestyle changes, because you're right, there has been a dramatic rise in PCOS if we compare it to 50 years ago, and certainly if we compare it to, you know, hundreds of years ago, obviously. But some of it likely is related to our nutrition and the fact that food has, with industrialization, is always available. And we just don't necessarily take out, it's not a lifestyle. And that's what I keep saying to people too. You know, our whole way of life has kind of shifted in terms of we don't necessarily have frequent activity. And again, this is different than saying calories in, calories out. There are reasons to be physically active for just general health, right. well-being purposes, not to lose weight. But frequent physical activity, even if that's just walking and, you know, 30 minutes a day, five times a week, that has beneficial metabolic effects. So a lot of us now have desk jobs. We sit for eight hours at a time. We don't get outside much. We don't have access to quality whole foods. And then we also are eating every two to three hours, maybe even shorter than that, combined with also frequently eating well into the night. So I think it's a host of different things that our bodies just initially weren't built that way, if if that makes sense. We just weren't programmed to kind of live like that. Yeah, I think we're seeing it and just express itself in so many different ways with different people. You know, some women, it'll be expressed as PCOS. For others, it's just, you know, obesity and having trouble losing the weight, you know, that that abdominal obesity, mm-hmm. you know, that we see so often. And I was going to say, well, and there's some people too, I mean, this is now a smaller proportion of people who make up women with PCOS, but I also, sometimes there's a misconception that everyone who has uh, PCOS is overweight or obese, and that's not always the case. So it, because you can have insulin resistance and you can have ectopic adipose tissue manifest itself in different ways. Right. It's a whole spectrum. And then there's also, I think we should mention too, there are also women who are obese that suffer from infertility that don't have PCOS, you know, but everyone's very quick to just say, oh yeah, you're probably, you're probably just PCOS. And so that's why it's really important. I think if you are having any infertility issues to have an appropriate workup or at least evaluation before, you know, just saying blanket statement, what is the cause of your infertility? But if you're definitely suffering from obesity, even if PCOS is not your root cause of why you're having difficulty conceiving, Obesity during pregnancy places you at increased risk and rates of complications. And so just maximizing your health status, if you're planning a pregnancy, sometimes you just wake up and you're like, oops, I'm pregnant. And so that may not have been planned. (laughs) And actually 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned. So but (laughs) if you are actually planning a pregnancy and notice that there are some lifestyle changes you can make prior to pregnancy, um, I think that will not only serve you well as you're conceiving, but that's going to help make your pregnancy a more successful one just through the course in general. And of course, keeping our insulin low is good for us, whether we have PCOS or 
overweight or anything. It's just a good thing to do. We don't want to have that constant insulin surge going through our bodies. No, you're right. No matter, even if we're slim, we don't. You know, I have a, a my husband's aunt who is suffering from dementia, and she's always been slim. But she, yeah, I think I've heard, you know, dementia is related to having high insulin levels, or it can be. You know, she was always a drink a Coke, have a candy bar mm-hmm. kind of a person throughout the day. And so, you know, the high insulin manifests itself in our bodies in different ways, but not in a good way. Right. And I think that's important to, I mean, when you touch upon it too, I think it's just, you know, the age of social media and just media in general. And it's as if intermittent fasting is only appropriate if you're to do if you're obese or overweight, you know, until you get to whatever you're trying to achieve. And then all of a sudden, because you may look a certain way, you shouldn't intermittent fast anymore, or is your eating disordered or, or what's going on? And, and it's really important to point out that intermittent fasting just has general health benefits. And so it's something that we could all benefit from having a period on a regular basis where we let our gut rest. I have a friend who is very in shape, has never struggled with weight, you know, always you would look at her and, you know, just say, oh my gosh, you're so healthy. And she's recently started intermittent fasting. And she said that her guts never felt better. Her digestions never felt better. And she's not attempting to lose weight. She just said she just in general felt better after starting intermittent fasting. My husband is the same way. He never needed to lose weight, but he adopted a about a 16, eight. I mean, he's loose, loose with it. He doesn't, you know, count as hours officially, but he opens his window with lunch and he closes it after dinner. Right. Right. <laughs> he stopped snacking. He used to always have a bowl of ice cream or a almond butter and jelly sandwich, you know, as a late night snack. He quit doing that. So he just compressed his eating. He did lose a little weight and he wasn't trying to, never wanted to, but, you know, I look at photos of him from a few years ago before he started he looks so much younger now and just, you know, more vibrant. We see that with people who are intermittent fasting. You know, even though he didn't do it to lose the weight, I think it's it's helping him and his health. Yeah, I just think with longevity, I have my great aunt, and I talk about her all the time, but my Aunt Elvie, she will turn 103 in June, Oh, and she has been intermittent fasting before we even knew what to call it, before it even had something to say. It's just how she lives, and she opens, she doesn't snack, she has her first meal at 10 a.m., and she has her next meal at 4 p.m., and those are her meals for the day. She eats good meals when she eats, but those are her two meals for the day, and then after 4 p.m., she may have, like, sip on something, you know, um, but but that's what she's been doing. And she lives independently and can recall. I mean, when I call her, she knows it's me. I mean, yeah. she's just as sharp as a tack and takes minimal medication. So I, <laughs> I love I'm definitely that. You a know, We hear that all the time. Yeah. People are like, yeah, my crazy grandma, she only ate, she drank black coffee all day and had one meal and she lived to be what, you know, we hear that. And so yeah. <laughs> it really, you know, we do, we have the studies are there. They're anecdotal. Well, they're not studies, but you know what I mean? The, the mm-hmm. anecdotal stories are there. Our relatives are the people that we know that have lived this way. So I love, I love stories like that. Yeah. yeah. The unofficial studies of, 
exactly. of our relatives. Exactly. <laughs> oh, good old Aunt Elvie. Yes. So have you talked to her about intermittent fasting at all and said, hey, guess what? It's got a name. I have. I have. So I talk with her probably monthly, actually. And I was telling her, I was like, oh my gosh, you're an intermittent faster. And she's like, I'm a what? I was like, no, that's what you do. And she's like, <laughs> no. I'm like, how you eat? I'm like, that's what we call it now. You know, it's it's intermittent fasting. And she's just like, okay, well, I eat when I'm hungry and I don't eat if I'm not hungry. And I was like, yeah, right. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the premise. Um, and she also <laughs> has always been fortunate. She will talk about how she's never really had a sweet tooth. She's never really, you know, she'll eat cake maybe a couple times a year. You know, she's never really eaten many highly processed foods. And so when she was growing up, right, I mean, the cow that they ate was the cow that they raised and killed on the farm, right? right. And they grew their produce. And then even when she moved into the city, she grew up in Louisiana. So she still had access to, you know, grass fed, grass finished beef. Again, it was just the way you raise cattle before we started calling it a thing. Right. It was just, that was just a cow. Yeah, it was a cow. And, the, and that's how you raise them. What do you mean you're feeding them Skittles? No, they eat grass, right? Right. So, but she right. always had plenty of fruits and vegetables around. And then she'll, you know, go on to talk about how she then stopped eating as much red meat in the, I think it was the nineties when mad cow, she said she read about mad cow and she was like, well, I'm done with that. And so she, <laughs> she decreased her, her cow intake dramatically. And then and now she'll still have red meat, but it's on a rare occasion. She does mainly veggies and then her meat is either poultry or fish. But I mean, she made that dietary shift and she would have already been what 70. I mean, and she still was not right. any medications when she made that shift. And, and so but she's always done kind of that 10 and 4 eating window even throughout that. So, again, I think, you know, with the whole foods combined with intermittent fasting, that's just like, you know, nature's way of kind of keeping us healthy. I really think it's how we're supposed to be. Yeah. It feels so right to my body. You know, I can't imagine. I was just at the beach for a few days. My son just graduated from college and we were there and I had longer windows than normal. And by the end, I was like, okay, uh-uh. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to switch gears just a little okay. bit and talk about a subject, pregnancy and fasting. And you've got a fabulous blog post that I, I have a saved note that when anyone in one of my Facebook groups asks about pregnancy and fasting, I whip out this saved note and I have added your blog post and I'm sharing it several times a day. So I thought you might oh, like to know thank that. You. Thank you for being such a good resource because, you know, women who are doing intermittent fasting, and we do have a lot of women in our groups who have PCOS. And so they, they come to intermittent fasting, hoping to lose weight. And then they find, oh, I'm ovulating again. And oh, I'm pregnant now. And so obviously, if they feel so great doing the intermittent fasting, then they think, well, I, I should just continue doing it during the pregnancy. And we always caution against that. And so talk about that from the um the point of view of an ABGYN. Yeah. So, and this is very timely discussion, actually, just because right now we're in the Ramadan season too. And so it, at Ramadan, for those who are unfamiliar, is a period of fasting from sun up to sunset that's observed by practicing Muslims. And so 
there's been a lot of discussion on whether or not fasting and pregnancy is safe and et cetera. So one, I preface it with there hasn't been that much research on fasting and pregnancy specifically, but a lot of what we know actually does come from the Ramadan literature in terms of, are there any differences in birth weight or perinatal outcomes, birth outcomes, things like that. The Ramadan literature, and I go through this on my blog post, doesn't really find any huge differences, but the studies are small in terms of between groups who did fast and who didn't. But the thing that we don't know is that what are the implications of regular fasting throughout the entire pregnancy? So, you know, it's very different and very hard to extrapolate a 30-day period to that of potentially 40 weeks you know, when, when you look at the duration right. of gestation. And so for people who are not engaging in fasting um, due to religious purposes, I usually recommend for my patients to not engage in prolonged fasting. And so what I mean by prolonged fasting are periods of anywhere from, you know, 14, 16 hours or longer, because we just, we don't know what that would do through the course of the pregnancy. What rather than intermittent fast during pregnancy um, and trying to do a 24-hour fast, you know, or 36-hour fast or something like that, I would recommend, this is why I think the nutrition aspect is so important. I would recommend looking at the food that you're eating and really focus on nourishing your body with whole real foods because whole foods also, at least for me and and what I've heard from other people, eating whole foods also makes you feel good. Do you know what I mean? Like your body also reacts positively to actual foods rather than food-like substances. And so this is also part of the reason when I have the PCOS clinic, we do focus on nutrition because it's very likely that as the insulin sensitivity restores themselves, these are women who are actively trying to get pregnant. They will probably pop up pregnant during the course of this. And so it's very hard to just all of a sudden say, I'm not going to fast and I have no idea to do with my nutrition. Oh, and I'm pregnant all at the same time. So I really think if we can focus on the nutrition aspect while we're doing intermittent fasting outside of pregnancy, then when an intermittent faster becomes pregnant, then you can say, okay, well, guess what? I'm not doing 16-8 anymore, you know, because that's a prolonged period of time. I may end up going to bed and, you know, not eating again until the morning, which that's fine, right? We all need to sleep and there's no reason that you should be constantly eating at night or while you're sleeping. But extending it beyond that period, uh, we just don't have enough data to say that something you should do. And so I would rather see you nourish your pregnancy, your baby, your body with whole real foods and use that as a focus to promote healthy weight gain during gestation. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, the reason we don't have studies on, you know, women fasting throughout an entire pregnancy is because those would never be approved. Right. Yeah. The ethical boards would never, they would never approve a study like that where where, we're asking pregnant women to fast. So we will never have any studies like that because they just wouldn't, wouldn't be ethical to carry out. So you've had pregnancies yourself. You have two sons. Is that what you've got? Mm -hmm, Two sons. 
I've got two sons as well, and I know that I, I wasn't going to risk it <laughs> when I was pregnant. I wanted to make sure that I, I gave those babies what they needed. I didn't want later. I'm the kind of person I have, I worry. So if something had come back to be wrong later, I would be like, oh, no, it was because I did X, Y, Z. Right, <laughs> so right. you want to make sure need those babies well. Yeah, and I and I mean I think too it's you know important to realize you're still cuz I think again we live in such an all or none society so it's like okay well you know I'm not fasting at all during pregnancy so now I'm going to eat like every hour on the hour and I'm like okay so no you can still <laughs> have like discrete meals and you can still practice right. time restrictive eating if that feels good for you meaning that when I say time restrictive of eating, let me clarify. I mean, just like if you wanted to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you're not snacking in between. And if you wanted to right. do that, like, yes, you can do that. If you have your last meal at seven or, you know, 7 p.m. or something like that, and you are going to bed around nine, and then you wake up until nine, I, you know, the next day or eight, I mean, you've given your body a period of natural gut rest, which our bodies know how to do, right? I mean, we were designed to sleep and not to eat while we are asleep. So, I mean, you right. are still, for the person who's like, oh, I can't believe I'm giving up my, you know, 16-8 schedule or, you know, whatever your schedule is. I mean, recognize that you are still giving your body gut rest. It's just not as much as you were doing prior to pregnancy. But you can still have great, delicious, whole food meals, be physically active, physical activity. I'm not sure why there's this notion, and hopefully we're getting over that notion where pregnant women can't exercise and, and you need to sit with your feet propped up. You can still do your exercise activity. Again, that has a beneficial impact on your metabolic health. So, I mean, there's still so many other things that you can do to promote healthy pregnancy and a healthy weight gain. Yeah, that's great advice. So I think it would be a great time for the women to eat intuitively mm -hmm. within their day as well. Correct. You know, eat if you're hungry and take a break <laughs> in between meals. So yeah, I think that's great advice. What books do you recommend for, for women or for really anyone? What books, what are your favorite books on nutrition? My favorite, favorite book on nutrition, it's, um, I do warn people, it's a, it's a, it's an in-depth read, so get prepared to read, but it's called Deep Nutrition, and it's by- um, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> that book. I mean, it's by Dr. Kate Shanahan, and she just kind of lays out kind of an ancestral eating approach. Uh, and it's, it's just fascinating. And I will say her book was the book that got me interested in learning more about home fermentation. So after I read, I mean, that, that book, is really, if you read that book, that will have a great basis for you. And then you can determine after that, like, which kind of her approach, I guess, spoke with you and read more on that subject. But after I read her book, I then read a book called The Art of Fermentation. And the author escapes me at the moment. But that talked about fermenting through history, different processes, etc. You know, it's an ancient practice. And then also um, kind of gives you the courage to try to start fermenting yourself. And when we talk about, you know, just health and overall well-being and biohacking and all of these things, I mean, the gut microbiome 
I know we haven't talked much about that today, but I mean, the gut microbiome plays a huge role in our health and our weight and just manifestations of chronic diseases and things of that nature. And you'll hear people, you know, they're taking their probiotic pills and their probiotic supplements. If you made your own fermented foods or you purchased your own fermented foods, I mean, the amount of probiotics, prebiotics, et cetera, and just good, healthy bacteria in the fermented food, I mean, a probiotic pill capsule can't even hold a candle to it. And so these, again, were things that we used to incorporate in our diet because we had no way else to preserve food. And so I think those two books really got me into really trying to learn more about things that probably were passed down previously from generation to generation, which we've just gotten so far away from today. So tell me what you're fermenting. I went to a fermenting class about a month ago and I'm still a little scared. I don't know why. (laughs) I know intellectually, I know I'm afraid I'm going to like grow a jar of botulism. I don't know why. You know what is? I think think a lot of the fear about fermentation also is extrapolated from canning. So like the canning is where you really get into like that botulism risk and things like that, things that have been improperly canned because they're not fermented. And so all of those different things can grow in it. With the fermentation, because of the lactic acid or, you know, whatever that's being created as a byproduct of the fermentation product, that actually inhibits the bad, you know, poisonous bacteria from growing. So it's really hard to mess up fermentation. Like once I understood that, like when I, you know, that's why I love that book because it kind of explained it. But once I realized it's really hard to mess up a fermentation, worst case scenario, like you're going to open it and you smell it. And if it smells bad, like don't eat it. Okay. That that's like the first premise, but it's really hard to do. I I think of all the things that I fermented, there's only been one jar that I threw away and I probably could have ate it, but I was like, ah, no, that's okay. <laughs> so <laughs> my very first experience with kimchi was through plated. Oh, I love yeah. plated and it was it was some meal that came with kimchi and and it smelled so bad. And I'm like, is it bad or is it supposed to smell like that? That's I'm like, true. I don't know. That's true. Kim- kimchi does have an acquired smell. So I guess it does also depend on your definition of what that. What do you love to ferment? What are your favorite so things? So my favorite thing to ferment um, is okra. So fermented okra is just, it's the best food I've ever had. And I have a garden. So we are just getting into our garden season, but I've already had my okra space planted. So probably towards the end of June, I'll start picking okra and we'll ferment that. I have it all over the counter when it's at the height of the season. I also started making um, kombucha. Okay. I've, I really want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I make my own kombucha. The important thing I think to point out about kombucha is that, again, I think we all get into these kind of health crazes. And so we're like, well, the more kombucha I drink, I mean, there's not one magic thing, right? That's going to elixir that's going to give you health. It's all this stuff in conjunction with the lifestyle. But the thing I caution people about kombucha bought from the stores is that 
the sugar content in the store-bought kombucha is extremely high. And so that's why I prefer to make my own kombucha at home is because it really should have a vinegary taste to it. And it shouldn't actually taste that sweet. And I've heard other people say, like, if you actually drink kombucha appropriately, a lot of people don't like the taste because it's not something really that sweet. But I like that. And we keep that on hand so that if for some reason we have to take an antibiotic for something or one of the kids are like, oh, I have, you know, diarrhea from who knows what, I keep fermented cucumbers in my fridge from the garden all winter long. And I'll just have them eat a couple fermented cucumbers or have them drink just a small cup of kombucha. Because again, it's not, wasn't designed to drink like pop or juice where you just down it all the time. And I mean, that helps our GI system so much rather than taking a probiotic capsule. Other things I'll ferment peppers. I make a pepper sauce, fermented pepper sauce. Fermented salsa is like the best thing to make out of the garden. Oh, I've never heard of that. Did did all this come out of the art of fermentation? Does he talk about that? So he talks about some of it. And then like once I realized I like, I tested my first ferment on myself to make sure I wasn't going to poison my family. I, I, you know, give that disclaimer. (laughs) And and once I realized that I woke up the next morning and felt fine, then I just started fermenting stuff like crazy because we have a garden in the back. So I just was like, oh, I can ferment anything. (laughs) And that's really what I did. So fermented salsa is really easy to make. And you just put your tomatoes in with like, if you want your cucumbers, your onions, your peppers, whatever spices. And obviously you put in your salt and your water, keep it submerged. And that only takes like three days. And that is some of the, and then you blend it afterwards. And that is like the best salsa that I've ever had. So there's there's so many things you can. Oh, do. it sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm a I'm a fermenting. That's okay. Nerd. You you've inspired me. You got to try it. I I am going to get. I'm going. To, I went to the class, like I said, and it scared me a little bit, and so I I won't announce to the world that I threw it away without letting it <laughs> ferment because I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I I think fermented salsa is something we would really enjoy. And I think my husband would like it and I would like it. All right. So I'm inspired. I'm going to get the art of fermentation also. It's a great book. I feel like that's one you'd want to have the hard copy for. Am yes. I right? You wouldn't want that in Kindle. Yes. I bought that. I bought the hard copy. Definitely. Because you, you sometimes want to go back to it. And then once you read that, there's a book, I think it was Fiery Ferments. And after a while, I was just like, okay, I'm going to buy like 8 million fermentation books. I'm just going to start like trying stuff. Once I got like the basic premise, water, salt, keep it submerged. Okay, got it. Then I just started trying other things. Okay. Your description of how it's not the same as canning, that really helped me because I think you're right. I was subconsciously thinking of canning. I remember my mother canning and she had, you know, you had to boil it. And so I think that's what I was thinking about. All right. So I'm going to get the art of fermentation. I also want to try some sourdough, doing some sourdough bread. Have you done anything with that? I haven't. I haven't. That's pretty cool. There's lots of uh, Facebook groups, but there was, oh, I can't remember which one it was now, but there was a fermenting group, but there people were talking about sourdough and different things. I've not tried that yet. It looks very fascinating though. Well, I bake my own bread and I grind wheat into flour. So oh, I'm wow. like one step away from, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have a blog post about it on jenstevens.com about how I make my bread, but I'll have to I haven't ventured into the sourdough. 
Yeah, you'll be grinding your own wheat before you know it. I will. It's the I next will. step. It's I'm, I'm almost <laughs> it, there. It's just amazing. You're almost there. Yeah. And then you'll be making sourdough. It just is so different from store-bought flour. Yeah. yeah. This has all the good stuff still in there. It retains all the the bran and the germ and the whatever, all the part that, you know, that gets refined right out of the wheat. Right. And it probably makes it, I mean, and it's definitely probably is healthier, obviously, since you're making it kind of the original way before the highly processing. So no, that's, that's awesome. The enzymes are preserved. All those things start to degrade as soon as the flour is milled. So when you buy, you know, even whole wheat flour that you buy at the grocery store, it's been sitting there on the shelf. And so it's degraded. It's, it's no longer, you know, quote living, you know, it's not, not a live food anymore. So it's just so very different when you mill your own. So all right, but also fermenting. I'm going to do that. So I'm very, very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Got to try well, it. Well, we're running out of time. Would you really quickly explain your fasting schedule? Like what, what does it look like for you? What's a, what's a day in the life of Dr. Ganhart? So it, it really just depends. I vary my fasting schedule a lot. But what I do most consistently, I'd say most days, is I'm usually about an 18-hour, so Instead of, you know, um, 16, 8, I'm probably like in 18, 6. So I have a, a kind of a tighter eating window that's about six hours. I have recently started also trying to shift it where I break my window earlier in the day, but then I close it earlier, really trying to um, okay. get away from night eating. So that's what I do most, most often. All right. And to wrap it up, what would be the best advice you would give someone who is new to intermittent fasting or is there anything you wish you knew when you started? And I know you're, you're advising lots of new intermittent fasters all the time, so I bet you've got some great advice. The biggest thing I tell people is start at your level. And I think a lot of times we have the tendency to compare. And so, you know, we may look at the next person who's able to do, you know, one meal a day or 24 hour fast. And we feel like after eight hours, we're like shaking. I mean, there's benefits to starting with time restricted eating and then pushing that back more. But what I say is pick something to start with that you actually think is feasible for you to achieve and then pick one day a week where you call it your challenge day. And so say you previously could only fast for 12 hours, which still has health benefits. But if you were trying to get beyond 12 hours, you know, pick a day a week where you have, you're active, you're busy, you know, you have other things going on. So your mind is focused on other things and say, okay, every Tuesday, that's my challenge day. So usually I do 12 hours, but on Tuesday, I'm going to aim for 14. And then gradually lengthen that time. And when you get the hang of that, make two challenge days a week. And then suddenly they don't necessarily become challenges anymore. You've adapted. And so I think a gradual approach for a lot of people works well. I love that. I also love the word that you that you use, the challenge day. That that's a great way of looking at it because you're you're challenging yourself and who isn't up for a good challenge and then you feel so good when you've accomplished it. Exactly. So that's that instead of trying to make like a sweeping change all at once and people feeling like they're not meeting their goals, I'm like, "Well, tell me what you think you can do. And that's what I do with a lot of people. And so you could do this exercise with yourself, have an honest conversation with yourself. And and what do you think you realistically can do to start, but know that you want to progress and just incorporate that. 
progression. Yeah. Instead of feeling like you have to start with one meal a day exactly. <laughs> or anything like that, or you might not, you might not ever even get to one meal a day. It's not like that's a goal that everyone should aspire to exactly. either, you know? Exactly. You got to figure out what works for you and for your body. And well, this has been a really great conversation. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I know the listeners are going to just love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G I N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast.